Chapter Two of Jane Austen and Her Country House Comedy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Beth Thomas. Jane Austen and Her Country House Comedy by William Henry Helm. Chapter Two Equipment and Method. Literary Influences Jane Austen's Defense of Novelists. The Old Essayists her favourite authors, some novels of her time, criticism of her niece's novel, sense of her own limitations, her method, humour, familiar names, some characteristics of style, suggested emendations, a new problem of authorship, a forbidding writer, commonplace and superficial, Thomas Love Peacock, sapient suggestions. I believe there is no constraint to be put upon real genius, nothing but inclination can set it to work, was one of the many sensible, if unoriginal, observations of the monarch in whose reign Jane Austen was born and died. But the inclination itself is usually started by external suggestions, and it is a mere truism that most books are written because others have appeared before them. Macaulay declared that but for Fanny Burney's example, Jane Austen would never have been a novelist. Some of her early attempts at a complete novel did indeed take the epistolary form which was common in the preceding age, and was the method of her admired Richardson, who, I think, fired her ambition quite as much as Miss Burney. It would also seem that Miss Radcliffe's wild romances had induced in Jane the desire to do something that should please by the absence of every quality that had made them popular. I doubt if there is any author of any period to whom the most famous remark of Buffon could be more justly applied than to Jane Austen. Le style et la femme même is a conviction which becomes more and more firm as one reads her novels and her letters and reflects over their relationship. Her simple life and her limited opportunities, her genius being granted, are a sufficient explanation of her work. Part of that life, and a part more important in proportion to the rest than it would have been in the case of one who had lived less remote from the world of thought and action, was the reading of favourite books. Clarissa, Sir Charles Grandison, and Pamela influenced her strongly, but she avoided more than she took from them in the formation of her style. Miss Burney she now and then laughs at a little, as when, after John Thorpe has said to Catherine, who confesses she has never read Camilla, you had no loss, I assure you. It is the horridest nonsense you can imagine. There is nothing in the world in it but an old man's playing at seesaw and learning Latin. Upon my soul, there is not. Jane Austen adds that the justness of this critique was unfortunately lost on poor Catherine. But where she loved, she laughed. She appreciated her sister novelist's work very highly, and she writes of a young woman whom she met at a neighbor's house. There are two traits in her character which are pleasing, namely, she admires Camilla and drinks no cream in her tea. Scott's poetry, of course, Jane read and enjoyed. Three of his most popular novels, Waverley, Guy Mannering, and The Antiquary, appeared during her lifetime, and their authorship, like that of her own works, was not avowed until after her death. How wide open was the secret of their origin from the very first, years before Scott's acknowledgment, we may see in one of Jane's letters of 1814, where she says, Walter Scott has no business to write novels, especially good ones. It is not fair. He has fame and profit enough as a poet, and should not be taking the bread out of the mouths of other people. I do not like him, and do not mean to like Waverley if I can help it, but I fear I must. She herself declared, half-jestingly, that she wrote for fame and not for profit 
neither in any but shallow measure was granted to her whilst she lived she did not like robert burns pant after distinction nor was she of the pushing type the offering up of self-respect in the cause of self-interest was the least possible of sacrifices with her the machine-made horrors of anne radcliffe la reine de épouvantement as she has been aptly called in spite of her retiring disposition were as familiar to jane as were those far less pouvantable of ainsworth to the girls of a later generation the radcliffe novels were published between jane's fourteenth and twenty-third years when she was most open to romantic influences but however much she may have shuddered over them in her teens she laughed at them in her twenties and it is certainly to the desire to satirize the melodramatic sensations of the school of fiction which they represent that we chiefly owe northanger abbey a pleasant mixture of a serious love story and a burlesque a motto for which might have been found in a sonnet of shakespeare my mistress's eyes are nothing like the sun coral is far more red than her lips red i grant i never saw a goddess go my mistress when she walks treads on the ground it is in this novel that leaving her characters for a page or two to take care of themselves the author thus refers to the sorrows of the novel-making craft and expresses her high appreciation of the work of miss burney and of miss edgeworth let us not desert one another we are an injured body although our productions have afforded more extensive and unaffected pleasure than those of any other literary corporation in the world no species of composition has been so much decried from pride ignorance or fashion our foes are almost as many as our readers and while the abilities of the nine hundredth abridger of the history of england or of the man who collects and publishes in a volume some dozen lines of milton pope and prior with a paper from the spectator and a chapter from stern are eulogized by a thousand pens there seems almost a general wish of decrying the capacity and undervaluing the labor of the novelist and of slighting the performances which have only genius wit and taste to recommend them i am no novel reader i seldom look into novels do not imagine that i often read novels it is really very well for a novel such is the common cant and what are you reading miss oh it is only a novel replies the young lady while she lays down her book with affected indifference or momentary shame it is only cecilia or camilla or belinda or in short only some work in which the greatest powers of the mind are displayed in which the most thorough knowledge of human nature the happiest delineation of its varieties the liveliest effusions of wit and humour are conveyed to the world in the best chosen language now had the same young lady been engaged with a volume of the spectator instead of such a work how proudly would she have produced the book and told its name though the chances must be against her being occupied by any part of that voluminous publication of which either the matter or manner would not disgust a young person of taste the substance of its papers so often consisting in the statement of improbable circumstances unnatural characters and topics of conversation which no longer concern any one living and their language too frequently so coarse as to give no very favourable idea of the age that could endure it this is a hard saying for those who count sir roger de coverley mr bickerstaff and many clarindas and sophronias among their friends the age of the regency may or may not have been as lax in its morality as some of its detractors have declared but that it was one in which ladies could reasonably have been expected to blush over the pages of the spectator is not easily to be believed 
the girls in the manor houses and parsonages of those days formed their literary tastes on native productions without going abroad for their novels they did not read french fiction as their grandmothers and great-grandmothers had done or as their cousins in town still did in spite of such warnings as that of a contemporary critic who held it scarcely possible to read french without contracting some pollution so extensively and radically is its whole literature depraved times had changed since dorothy osborne discussed the voluminous romances of calprened and mademoiselle de scudery with william temple another important branch of jane's private and voluntary curriculum was her reading not only of the coarse journalism of steele and addison and their colleagues but in the various successes of the spectator and the tatler which had their little days and died particularly during the reign of george the second not only in the rambler and the idler of the great man whom she so highly respected but in the world the mirror the lounger the connoisseur and other less remembered publications of their class you may come upon characters and reflections and incidents which may have afforded fruitful suggestions to one who after the manner of genius could turn even the dullness of others into sparkling delight of her own her favourite poet was crabbe she never met him but she was so charmed by his work that as her nephew has recorded she used jokingly to say if she ever married at all she could fancy being mrs crabbe her appreciation of such poems as the village and the parish register is suggestive she herself made no attempt to illustrate the simple annals of the poor born in a family which was itself a part of the landed gentry in those days in its pride she was obviously conscious of a lofty barrier between her own class and the peasantry george crabbe on the other hand the son of lowly folk was born and nurtured in poverty and he never forgot that he had sprung from the sand dunes of the east coast his pictures of the poor their sorrows and joys fill the most delightful of his verses his ease in their society his understanding of their minds and characters mark him off as clearly from jane austen as to take a very modern instance the admirable and sympathetic pictures of farm life offered in la terre qui meurt distinguish monsieur rene bazin from monsieur marcel batalia who has dealt so feelingly with the decadence of the chateau in la vendee aux Genet. jane found in crabbe something that she missed in herself a ready appreciation of all classes she loved cooper too both in his poems and his prose there was much in the task that could not but please her though the humour must have struck her as being exceedingly mild and the descriptions over-laboured cooper though kindly to the rural poor and often referring to their occupations smiles derisively at those who pretend to envy the labourer's lot and to regard his cottage if properly rose-bordered as preferable to any other kind of residence so farewell envy of the peasant's nest if solitude can make scant the means of life society for me thou seeming sweet be still a pleasing object in my view my visit still but never mine abode jane was wholly in accord with the sentiment of these lines in some verses composed in eighteen o seven for a family competition in producing rhymes with rose which but for the rhyming are a burlesque of cooper's style we find a picture of a cottager wherein if the poetry be naturally of small account are lines that would mark it without the direct evidence of the name as hers and not cassandra's or mrs austen's happy the labourer in his sunday clothes in light drab coat smart waistcoat well darned hose and hat upon his head to church he goes 
as oft with conscious pride he downward throws a glance upon the ample cabbage rose which stuck in his buttonhole regales his nose he envies not the gayest london beaux in church he takes his seat among the rows pays to the place the reverence he owes likes best the prayers whose meaning least he knows lists to the sermon in a softening doze and rouses joyous at the welcome close there is a letter of january seventeen fifty eight from johnson to bennett langton which as boswell remarks shows its writer in as easy and pleasant a state of existence as constitutional unhappiness ever permitted him to enjoy i cannot help quoting it here as evidence of an affinity of johnson in his happiest hours with his constitutionally cheerful admirer jane austen the two Whartons just looked into the town, and were taken to see Cleone, where David says they were starved for want of company to keep them warm. David and Doddy have had a new quarrel, and, I think, cannot conveniently quarrel any more. Cleone was well acted by all the characters, but Bellamy left nothing to be desired. I went the first night, and supported it as well I might, for Doddy, you know, is my patron, and I would not desert him. The play was very well received. Doddy, after the danger was over, went every night to the stage-side, and cried at the distress of poor Cleone. I have left off housekeeping, and therefore made presents of the game which you were pleased to send me. The pheasant I gave to Mr. Richardson, the bustard to Dr. Lawrence, and the pot I placed with Miss Williams, to be eaten by myself. Mr. Reynolds has within these few days raised his price to twenty guineas a head, and Miss is much employed in miniatures. I know not anybody else whose prosperity has increased since you left them if the date and the reference to the writer's relations with the dramatist had been suppressed the letter might have been given as one of jane's own without arousing suspicion in any but a confirmed boswellian david is garrick of course while doddy is dodsley author of the play and the fortunate recipient of the langton pheasant is the author of clarissa another of jane's favourites more than thirty years after when she had had time to be born and grow up richardson fanny burney anne radcliffe maria edgeworth after eighteen hundred scott as poet johnson crabbe and cooper then afforded the more solid literary nourishment of jane austen she had studied the essayists of queen anne's time and their emulators and was not unfamiliar with fielding and she did not neglect the ordinary books that came from the circulating libraries of the day mrs martin she writes of a bookseller in her neighbourhood who had started such a library as an inducement to subscribe tells me that her collection is not to consist only of novels but of every kind of literature etc she might have spared this pretension to our family who are great novel readers and not ashamed of being so but it was necessary i suppose to the self-consequence of half of her subscribers unhappily this high-class venture was a total failure the novels supplied by mrs martin and others forerunners of those which now go forth from the strand in oxford street are frequently referred to in jane's letters and some of them if we are so disposed we can read at the british museum there was for example sarah burney's clarentine which jane and her mother read for the third time in eighteen o seven and are surprised to find how foolish it is full of unnatural conduct and forced difficulties there was self-control a book without anything of nature or probability but which jane feared might be too clever and that she might find her own work forestalled by it there was the alphonsine of madame de genlis which did not do we were disgusted in twenty pages as independent of a bad translation it has indelicacies which disgrace a pen hitherto so pure and there was margiana which the austens were reading in the winter of eighteen o nine at southampton and 
like very well indeed we are just going to set off for northumberland to be shut up in widdrington tower where there must be two or three sets of victims already immured under a very fine villain about the same time cassandra tells of some romance which the godmersham circle had been devouring and jane replies to set up against your new novel of which nobody ever heard before and perhaps never may again we have got ida of athens by miss owenson which must be very clever because it was written as the authoress says in three months we have only read the preface yet but her irish girl does not make me expect much if the warmth of her language could affect the body it might be worth reading in this weather we shall not find much criticism of books either in the novels or the letters there is a passage in one of aunt jane's letters to her niece anna written in eighteen fourteen in which her point of view on one important question of style is clearly expressed anna probably inspired by her aunt's example for the authorship of sense and sensibility in pride and prejudice had leaked out in the family in spite of all precaution had written a novel herself and had sent the manuscript to jane for kindly consideration and advice the result was not wholly encouraging your aunt cassandra does not like desultory novels and is rather afraid yours will be too much so that there will be too frequently a change from one set of people to another and that circumstances will be introduced of apparent consequence which will lead to nothing it will not be so great an objection to me if it does i allow much more latitude than she does and think nature and spirit cover many sins of a wandering story and people in general do not care so much about it for your comfort i have scratched out the introduction between lord portman and his brother and mr griffin a country surgeon don't tell mr c lyford would not be introduced to men of their rank and when mr p is first brought in he would not be introduced as the honourable that distinction is never mentioned at such times at least i believe not of a later novel of anna's which jane read to your aunt cassandra in our own room at night while we undressed she tells the girl that Devereux Forrester's being ruined by his vanity is extremely good, but I wish you would not let him plunge into a vortex of dissipation. I do not object to the thing, but I cannot bear the expression. It is such thorough novel slang, and so old, that I dare say Adam met with it in the first novel he opened. Mrs. Austen had said, and Jane agreed with her, that Anna had allowed a married couple in the novel to be too long in returning a visit from the vicar's wife and jane had ventured to expunge as too familiar and inelegant the bless my heart in which sir thomas one of the characters indulged jane's own emma might say good god when she pleased but anna's sir thomas might not even bless his heart a last criticism on anna's book is worth quoting for its direct bearing on the critic's own method you describe a sweet place but your descriptions are often more minute than will be liked you give too many particulars of right hand and left jane's estimate of her own manner of work is modest enough the little bit two inches wide of ivory on which i work with so fine a brush as produces little effect after much labour she says with this phrase of her own as a text she has been called a miniaturist but if artists and authors are to be compared there is quite as much of the selection and the richness of a gainsborough in her work as of the minuteness of a metsu or a maisonnier in her reply to the amazing proposal of the librarian at carlton house that she should compose an historical romance founded on the records of the saxe coburg family she writes not without a touch of her gentle satire i am fully sensible that such a romance might be much more to the purpose of profit or popularity than such pictures of domestic life in country villages as i deal in but i could no more write a romance than an epic poem 
i could not sit seriously down to write a serious romance under any other motive than to save my life and if it were indispensable for me to keep it up and never relax into laughing at myself or any other people i am sure i should be hung before i had finished the first chapter no i must keep to my own style and go on in my own way and though i may never succeed again in that i am convinced that i should totally fail in any other her limitations of subject are clear in her own mind even of the domestic life in villages she would only deal with the side where the daily bread was provided out of income not out of retail profits or weekly wages it is a suggestive fact to which i have already alluded that she never even tried to draw a peasant's family her heroines may on the rarest occasions call at a cottage to inquire after a sick child or leave a charitable gift but of the conditions under which the labouring classes lived during the hard times of the french wars we learn nothing at all from her writings the nearest approaches to such subjects are the account of the price's home at portsmouth a sordid interior which has been held i think not unjustly to be as vivid in its suggestion of impecuniosity and discomfort as anything written by zola and the similar but far less effective picture of the watson's family life her literary style seems to be spontaneous and so in comparison with that of stylists it certainly is she had stored her mind with good literature while still in her teens and no doubt most of her limpid sentences flowed freely from her pen but the consistent absence of superfluous epithets and other redundancies is evidence that she had consciously formed an ideal of composition and that she thought out the means of producing her effects is clear from several passages in her letters to her niece who addressed her as dear miss darcy and wanted her to answer in that character jane replied even had i more time i should not feel at all sure of the sort of letter that miss d would write she had studied her art till she could analyse its qualities as we may see from a letter written from chawton in eighteen thirteen mrs austen had been reading pride and prejudice aloud to jane and martha lloyd who lived with the austens and jane tells cassandra that though she perfectly understands the characters herself she cannot speak as they ought upon the whole however i am quite vain enough and well satisfied enough the work is rather too light and bright and sparkling it wants shade to be stretched out here and there an essay on writing a critique on walter scott or the history of bonaparte or something that would form a contrast and bring the reader with increased delight to the playfulness and epigrammatism of the general style happily she did not provide the conventional shade which would have been on a par with the brown tree that according to sir george beaumont was an indispensable feature of every properly composed landscape painting shade however did appear in several chapters of persuasion which for a certain suggestion of melancholy stands apart from the other novels though not as markedly as northanger abbey stands apart for its exuberant frivolity macaulay declared of fanny burney's later style that it was the worst that has ever been known among men jane austen's style in its happy hours is so admirably adapted to its purpose that while we may not call it the best a term which advertisement has rendered meaningless as a standard of excellence it has never been surpassed as a means to a desired end it seems trite to say that the first point to consider in any question of style is the intended result but it is a point so frequently overlooked that much criticism about art and letters as about politics or agriculture is vitiated by the hopeless effort to set up an abstract ideal applicable to all cases like a universal watch-key the result for which jane austen worked can scarcely be put in question 
she was impelled to make her little world live in fiction not precisely as she saw it and heard it but as she could most attractively present it to minds possessing the indispensable modicum of humour without which the charm is lost at least as nearly as the charm of a turner sunset by a person whose optic nerve is irresponsive to red rays apart from her prevailing humour the modesty of her style is a continual beauty there is none of that florid eloquence which depends more on sound than sense for its effect nor of that forcing of strange phrases which in these days so often passes for literary excellence there is no precociosity about her books the narrative is easy the incidents are probable the dialogue with few exceptions is natural the bright people being differentiated from the dull by their talk and not as in most novels by the author's assurances if mr meredith was right when he declared that it is unwholesome for men and women to see themselves as they are if they are no better than they should be there must be many unwholesome pages in jane austen's work for the tolerably large class to which he referred neither in real life nor in the life of her books did she suffer fools gladly and so far as the men of her creation are concerned she is on the whole more successful in representing the foolish than the wise her chief failure is in the realization of such a young man as one of her heroines would have been likely to admire most of the younger men are sketchily drawn and we who are men would fain believe that she did not understand the nature of a man's heart seeing that she never found one worth accepting knightley and bertram seem to have been favourites of hers but they are not lively people nor sufficiently wanting in priggishness the liveliest of them all is henry tilney whatever his qualities of mind the jane austen touch is charmingly varied and it is felt in some of its happy strokes in the talk between this mercurial young rector and the girl whose early budding affections he so speedily returns have you been long in bath madam about a week sir replied catherine trying not to laugh really with affected astonishment why should you be surprised sir why indeed said he in his natural tone but some emotion must appear to be raised by your reply and surprise is more easily assumed and not less reasonable than any other this bit of dialogue recalls a remark in a letter written by jane to cassandra benjamin portal is here how charming that is i do not exactly know why but the phrase followed so naturally that i could not help putting it down mr collins is one of the most finished of jane's studies of men he comes near to the impossible at times but she makes him a living creature the speech in which he offers his hand and advantages to his cousin elizabeth has often been quoted and its charms can never fade only a page of it is necessary to tempt the reader to turn again or for the first time to pride and prejudice in order that he may find the rest of the inimitable scene my reasons for marrying are first that i think it is a right thing for every clergyman in easy circumstances like myself to set the example of matrimony in his parish secondly that i am convinced it will add very greatly to my happiness and thirdly which perhaps i ought to have mentioned earlier that it is the particular advice and recommendation of the very noble lady whom i have the honour of calling patroness twice has she condescended to give me her opinion unasked too on this subject and it was but the very saturday night before i left hunsford between our pools at quadrille while mrs jenkinson was arranging mr berg's footstool that she said mr collins you must marry a clergyman like you must marry choose properly choose a gentlewoman for my sake and for your own let her be an active useful sort of person not brought up high but able to make a small income go a good way 
this is my advice find such a woman as soon as you can bring her to hunsford and i will visit her allow me by the way to observe my fair cousin that i do not reckon the notice and kindness of lady catherine de Bourgh as among the least of advantages in my power to offer you will find her manners beyond anything i can describe and your wit and vivacity i think must be acceptable to her especially when tempered with the silence and respect which her rank will inevitably excite the immediate consequences of elizabeth's refusal are delightfully imagined and described the moment mrs bennet hears of it she rushes to her husband's room you must come and make lizzie marry mr collins for she vows she will not have him and if you do not make haste he will change his mind and not have her mr bennet raised his eyes from his book as she entered and fixed them on her face with a calm unconcern which was not in the least altered by her communication i have not the pleasure of understanding you said he when she had finished her speech of what are you talking of mr collins and lizzie lizzie declares that she will not have mr collins and mr collins begins to say that he will not have lizzie and what am i to do on the occasion it seems a hopeless business speak to lizzie about it yourself tell her that you insist upon her marrying him let her be called down she shall hear my opinion mrs bennet rang the bell and miss elizabeth was summoned to the library come here child cried her father as she appeared i have sent for you on an affair of importance i understand that mr collins has made you an offer of marriage is it true elizabeth replied that it was very well and this offer of marriage you have refused i have sir very well we now come to the point your mother insists upon your accepting it is it not so mrs bennet yes or i will never see her again an unhappy alternative is before you elizabeth from this day you must be a stranger to one of your parents your mother will never see you again if you do not marry mr collins and i will never see you again if you do there is nothing commonplace about this what matter that the characters are only middle-class and respectable if they can afford material for such excellent wit in one respect judged by the present standard in fiction jane austen's work assuredly is commonplace no novelist was ever less troubled in the search for names she merely took those of people she had heard of or met preferring the common to the unusual bennett dashwood elliot price woodhouse names that the modern popular novelist would reject at sight served her turn a darcy or a tilney being her highest flights in nomenclature as for the christian names they are of the most ordinary and are used over and over again in sense and sensibility for example three of the prominent characters are named john john dashwood john middleton and john willoughby there are two catherines in pride and prejudice elizabeth's fanny's anne's mary's edward's henry's robert's fill the bills and such a name as frank churchill seems recondite it is much the same in the letters the truth being that the gladdises and evadnes and marmadukes of those days were very rare and almost unknown in rural society the burden which her sister cassandra bore must have strengthened jane's determination that her heroes and heroines should not have unusual names and so we have our eleanors and elizabeths and fannies with their edwards and edmunds and henrys the darcys are almost the only exceptions that try the rule fitzwilliam and georgiana are more in the style of the ordinary novel of high life so much for names how are the men and women who bear them introduced to us when a colonel newcombe or an alfred jingle or a sylvain pons comes upon the scene 
we hear a good deal about his personal appearance his manner of dress his bearing and those who introduce him have a huge circle of men and women to bring before us with similar formalities jane austen like a casual hostess at a modern dance leaves us as often as not to make acquaintance in any way we can scott with his wealth of character studies among high and middle and low his kings and cavaliers and covenanters and crofters was the most generous giver of types among jane austen's contemporaries maria edgeworth in depicting the gentry and peasantry of ireland and john galt the small shopkeepers and their customers in the scottish country towns managed to present us to a large circle of new acquaintances of various classes and occupations jane had no use for characters or centres of social life that required to be specially described for a particular purpose only in one of her novels sense and sensibility is the busy life of london made the subject of any but the most casual description and even then it is but the transference of the country people to town and of the two or three townspeople back to their london houses from their country visits that is effected the general life of the metropolis its theatres parks and bustles are left to all intent unnoticed yet as we know from many passages in her letters jane during her visits was a keen spectator of the pageantry of life in a city which she jestingly declared played havoc with her character here i am once more in this scene of dissipation and vice she writes from cork street in august seventeen ninety six and i begin already to find my morals corrupted and in the next month she sends this little message to mr austen my father will be so good as to fetch home his prodigal daughter from town i hope unless he wishes me to walk the hospitals or enter at the temple or mount guard at st james's she was not prodigal save in gloves and ribbons but she enjoyed the delights of the country cousin in town she went very often to the play so often at times as to be weary of it the hypocrite bickerstaff's alteration of kibber's adaptation of tartuffe well entertained her Doughton and Matthews being the chief actors, and she saw Liston, Miss Stevens, Miss O'Neill, and Keane at the outset of his fame. The clandestine marriage was a favourite piece, and on one occasion she notes that her nieces, whom she sometimes took to the theatre, revelled last night in Don Juan, whom we left in hell at half-past eleven. Such joys, however, did not move her mind enough to seduce her from the country as a source of inspiration for her work all lives lived out of london are mistakes more or less grievous but mistakes said sydney smith adapting consciously or not the saying of mascarille to the precieuses pour moi je tienne que hors de paris il n'y a point de salut pour les honnêtes gens the life of jane austen whose humour the author of the plimley letters the father and uncle of a hundred diverting anecdotes so greatly enjoyed may serve to show the weakness of such unreserved generalization her subjects were found in the restful backwaters of life not in the crowded centres where mankind is more and more bewildered by the failure of wisdom to keep pace with the advance of knowledge it is one of jane's qualities as a writer that she shows little hospitality to the stock phrases of ordinary people lord chesterfield told his son if instead of saying that tastes are different and that every man has his own peculiar one you should let off a proverb and say that what is one man's meat is another man's poison everybody would be persuaded that you had never kept company with anybody above footmen and housemaids proverbial philosophy finds little encouragement from jane who places it in the mouths of her least agreeable characters and one may believe after reading her books and her letters that she agrees with her own marianne dashwood 
who when sir john middleton has dared to suggest that she will be setting her cap at willoughby warmly replies that is an expression sir john which i particularly dislike i abhor every commonplace phrase by which wit is intended and setting one's cap at a man or making a conquest are the most odious of all their tendency is gross and illiberal and if their construction could ever have been deemed clever time has long ago destroyed all its ingenuity the offending sir john did not much understand this reproof but he laughed as heartily as if he did elizabeth bennett's use of the saying keep your breath to cool your porridge gives us a worse shock than it can have given to darcy so unexpected is it from the mouth of a jane austen heroine when one of cassandra's letters had diverted jane beyond moderation and she added i could die of laughter at it she felt the banality of the phrase as keenly as marianne would have done and saved herself with as they used to say at school whatever the words and phrases she employed it can never be held that she spoke well according to the test proposed by catherine morland when she said to henry tilney i cannot speak well enough to be unintelligible a remark which mr tilney hailed with delight as an excellent satire on modern language its origin may be found in that first volume of the mirror which catherine's mother brought downstairs for her edification where we are told that many great personages contrived to be unintelligible in order to be respected a peculiarity of jane austen's vocabulary and manner is her fondness for negatives in un such words as unabsurd unpretty unrepulsable unfastidious untoward and unexceptionable a pet fancy of hers which occurs i am told at least eight times in emma alone being as common in her novels as halidome and minion in the older romances of water street some day perhaps a lost novel of hers written during the apparently idle years of her residence at bath will be identified by the prevalence of un in its text in clarity of meaning her style is usually of the purest and there is reason to think that her few obscurities are as often due to carelessness as to defective art not that she was exempt from all the weaknesses that she discovers for our amusement in the generality of her sex henry tilney's appreciation of women as letter-writers can hardly have been imagined without at least a moment's reflection by the author over her own achievements i have sometimes thought says catherine doubtfully whether ladies do write so much better letters than gentlemen that is i should not think the superiority was always on our side as far as i have had the opportunity of judging replied tilney it seems to me that the usual style of letter-writing among women is faultless except in three particulars and what are they a general deficiency of subject a total inattention to stops and a very frequent ignorance of grammar upon my word i need not have been afraid of disclaiming the compliment you do not think too highly of us in that way i should no more lay it down as a general rule that women write better letters than men than that they sing better duets or draw better landscapes in every power of which taste is the foundation excellence is pretty fairly divided between the sexes deficiency of subject has not been charged against jane's published letters but they have often been charged with deficiency of serious interest her works certainly do exhibit an occasional looseness of grammar mostly due to bad punctuation the faulty construction of lucy's letters sense and sensibility is noted by the author but while jane would not have been likely to regard sincerely wish you happy in your choice as a proper way of beginning a sentence her own delinquencies with respect to commas are sometimes no less grave than those of mrs robert ferrers 
she would have felt no serious sympathy with Cyrano's declaration concerning his literary compositions. Monson se coagule en pensant qu'on y peut changer un virgule. Her blood was too cool to be frozen by the printer's fancies in punctuation. In an old number of the Cambridge Observer, the curious student may find some suggested emendations of Jane Austen's text by Mr. A. W. Verrall, many of them being concerned with what are probably printer's errors. Those which deal with punctuation need not reflect on the printer as prime offender. The author was a woman. Mr. Verrall's ingenious suggestion that when Jane Austen is made to say that William Price's direct holidays might justly be given to his friends at Mansfield Park, his own family seeing him frequently at Portsmouth where his ship was lying, she really wrote derelict holidays, has little to commend it. Direct, so evidently, I think, being used to differentiate his actual leave from his ordinary leisure hours when on service. But there are two emendations, typical of many which might be suggested. Mr. Verrall has probably noted them for the addition which he ought to undertake in time for the centenary, which are entirely acceptable. Fanny Price is made to say to Mr. Rushworth, on the occasion when Maria Bertram and Crawford gave that unfortunate person the slip in his own garden, they desired me to stay. My cousin Maria charged me to say that you would find them at the Knoll or thereabouts. Mr. Verrall justly observes that no one had desired Fanny to stay, and that she would be the last girl to utter an irrelevant falsehood. He holds that she really did on this occasion, for kindness sake, say something not quite true, and it was, they desired me to say, my cousin Maria charged me to say, that you would find them at that knoll, or thereabouts. Again, when in describing the discussion over Mrs. Weston's proposed dance, Jane Austen is made to say in Emma, the want of proper families in the place, and the conviction that none beyond the place and its immediate environs could be attempted to attend, were mentioned. The author's words were, in Mr. Verrall's opinion, tempted to attend. Like Shakespeare's, the manuscript of Jane Austen's masterpieces are to seek, so that what she wrote we cannot prove. The probability that in these two cases, as in others, the author omitted to notice in proof the errors of the printer is more likely, on the whole, than that her pen had slipped badly, and that her copy had never been carefully read over. She cared little for such slips, however, as we know from a letter written after Pride and Prejudice was published, wherein she says, there are a few typical errors, and a said he or said she would sometimes make the dialogue more immediately clear, but I do not write for such dull elves as have not a great deal of ingenuity themselves. Typical, of course, is here used in its obsolete sense of typographical. The negative bond of union referred to above between Jane Austen and the only English writer whom some of her eminent admirers have allowed to take precedence of her, that the manuscript of both have disappeared, suggests the passing reflection that in these days when shakespeare is not allowed to hold the title to his plays without challenge when anne and emily bronte are accused of being so far as the public is concerned mere pseudonyms of their sister charlotte when george henry lewes has been given the credit for george eliot's novels and the speeches of eminent statesmen are said to be written by their wives it is rather surprising that no one in search of a striking subject for a magazine article has attacked the claims of jane austen to a place among english authors there is no evidence in the memoirs of her time that any distinguished person ever found himself in her company her name did not appear on the title pages of any books she was almost unknown outside a small provincial circle and in that circle no one seems to have had any idea that there was anything specially remarkable about her is it likely that such an obscure little body should have written such admirable books? 
is it not much more likely that they were the work of madame d'arblay or that in these peaceful compositions mrs radcliffe found rest and recreation after the fearful strain on her delicate nervous system involved in the production of her epouvantable melodramas jane austen lays claim to some of the novels in her letters it is true but since ben jonson's references to shakespeare and all other contemporary evidence in favour of the stratford actor's authorship of the plays have been explained away to the complete satisfaction of those who dispute his claims it would be no very difficult task to persuade a number of earnest souls that jane austen's letters are not really evidence of her authorship of the novels as for her nearest relations they were not in the real secret the secret they are supposed to have kept during her life was that she wrote the novels but if so where are the manuscripts why did not her admiring brothers treasure those most precious relics two of her manuscripts in addition to the opening chapters of her final effort in fiction her family did as a fact preserve those of lady susan and the watsons and these here italic type becomes necessary are so inferior to the six novels acknowledged soon after her death as hers that it is easy if we like to find it difficult to believe that they are from the same pen the real secret was that she did not write those six novels this fascinating theory is freely offered to whomsoever it may please to follow it up we gain many vivid glimpses of jane austen's views of life in her novels and northanger abbey holds a place apart from the others not only for its many pages of burlesque but as the vehicle by which so many of the author's reflections are conveyed in a bright wrapping to her appreciative readers let me give one or two examples the advantages of natural folly in a beautiful girl have already been set forth by the capital pen of a sister author and to her treatment of the subject i will only add in justice to men that though to the larger and more trifling part of the sex imbecility in females is a great enhancement of their personal charms there is a portion of them too reasonable and too well informed themselves to desire anything more in woman than ignorance but catherine did not know her own advantages did not know that a good-looking girl with an affectionate heart and a very ignorant mind cannot fail of attracting a clever young man unless circumstances are particularly untoward the sister author is fanny burney the opinion of men the trifling or the reasonable is jane austen's in henry tilney's remarks upon catherine's extraordinary fears concerning his father's conduct to mrs tilney we may discover something of jane's view of the general condition of society in her time dear miss morland consider the dreadful nature of the suspicions you have entertained what have you been judging from remember the country and the age in which we live remember that we are english that we are christians consult your own understanding your own sense of the probable your own observation of what is passing around you does our education prepare us for such atrocities do our laws connive at them could they be perpetrated without being known in a country like this where society and literary intercourse is on such a footing where every man is surrounded by a neighbourhood of voluntary spies and where roads and newspapers lay everything open dear miss morland what ideas have you been admitting of jane austen as a humorist there is no need to write specifically at any length almost every extract given from her novels whatever the point to be illustrated shows her in that capacity it is impossible for long to separate her humour from the rest of her qualities yet there are people who see no humour in her and actually like her novels in spite of their seriousness an american author mr oscar adams wrote a book about her some years ago 
in order to place her before the world as the winsome delightful woman that she really was and thus to dispel the unattractive not to say forbidding mental picture that so many have formed of her who were these many people evidently they existed either without or within the author's own circle or there would have been no reason to write a book for their conversion they were probably those worthy persons we have all met a few of them ourselves who read emma and pride and prejudice and the rest without noticing that a malicious little sprite is for ever peeping between the lines imagine a reader who regards all mr bennett's remarks as sober statements of considered opinion and you will understand how jane austen might seem formidable though she is never so ruthless to her characters as mr bennett is to his wife jane is herself a member of his family perhaps ruthless is the wrong word you might apply it to a boy who throws pebbles at a donkey but if the object of his attack was a rhinoceros the boy would suffer more than the pachyderm to the slings and arrows of her husband's outrageous humour mrs bennet was less sensible than was gulliver to the darts of the lilliputians gulliver did feel a pricking sensation whereas mrs bennet was merely annoyed that mr bennet did not always agree with her mood of the moment in his critical introduction to pride and prejudice professor saintsbury forcibly says in reply to those who resent the presence of such a husband as mr bennett that mrs bennett was a quite irreclaimable fool and unless he had shot her or himself there was no way out of it for a man of sense and spirit but the ironic the most unpleasant aspect of mr bennett's sarcasms is not that they hurt his wife which they could not but that they were heard by his five daughters three of whom at least were more or less able to understand them jane austen the novelist then may be truly forbidding to readers who take her au pied de la lettre such readers are in the position of catherine morland listening to henry tilney's imaginary account of the antiquities and mysteries of northanger abbey she went there and painfully discovered the truth while they can no more hope to discover it than a man with one eye can hope to see things as they appear to his fellows who have two still he is a king among the blind and the readers who find pleasure in jane austen as an entirely serious author are to be counted happy as compared with those who cannot read her at all it has been said by mr goldwin smith that there is no philosophy beneath the surface of jane austen's novels for profound scrutiny to bring to light her characters typifying nothing because their doings and sayings are familiar and commonplace her genius is shown in making the familiar and commonplace intensely interesting and amusing such justification as may be discovered for the charge that the subjects of the novels are commonplace is chiefly negative in kind it is not that we may find in real life innumerable people as distinctive and entertaining as the principal characters of these stories but that jane does not introduce us to dramatically unusual scenes or persons there are no houses like dotheboys hall or ravenswood tower no incidents like the flight of joss sedley from brussels or the arrest of vautrin no strange creatures like mr rochester or jonas chuzzlewit no scenes like those in fagin's kitchen or shirley's mill she was immediately followed by a humorist whose scenes and characters are as unusual as hers were familiar he is almost unknown to the great fiction devouring public and little read in comparison even with jane austen with whom he has some strong affinities as well as antipathies thomas love peacock was never so happily inspired or so happy perhaps as when he was ironing the insincerity or the unreasonable prejudice of the well-to-do class there is among the parsons of jane austen's creating none who is more gloriously diverting than dr folliot in crotchet castle 
and it is pleasant to imagine Mr. Collins as curate to that militant theologian. The talk of the young women in Peacock's modern novels is better informed and much less natural than that of Elizabeth Bennet or Emma or Anne. And as for the men, while Mr. Tilney or Mr. Darcy may not have found it difficult to hold their own with most of the lovers in Peacock's novels, his intellectuals, Milestone, Macweedy, and the rest, would have found no one to refute their arguments among the company at Netherfield or at Mansfield Park. Peacock allows his satirical hobby-horse to run wild over the bramble-covered desert of British prejudice, while Jane Austen never leaves go of the rain. The result is that while he frequently makes us laugh at the absurdities of his skithrops and chainmails, whose performances we know to be burlesque, she makes us chuckle by her silver-shod satire of the class which she had studied from childhood. There are some who read Jane Austen and cannot read Peacock, and the reverse is also true. Those who can read both are never likely to be in want of pleasure on winter evenings so long as mind and eyes are left. It is certain that no one familiar with either author could mistake a page written by one of them for a page by the other. Jane Austen's people, in spite of the humour with which the atmosphere is charged, are always possible, except some of her most intimate admirers, say, for Mr. Collins. While Peacock was never to be deterred from breaking through the fence which borders the pathway of probability. Only such readers as the prelate who declined to believe some of the incidents in Gulliver's travels could be expected to regard Melancourt or Nightmare Abbey as veracious narratives. For all that, Peacock, whose first novel, Headlong Hall, appeared in the year 1816, in which Jane Austen's last published work was done, was her immediate successor as a satirist of the follies and foibles of English men and women, and he was succeeded in turn by the splendid Thackeray, whose most obvious difference from Jane Austen lies in his frequent indulgence in sentimental reflections. Jane was amused by the suggestions for improving her work, or for the plots of fresh novels given to her from time to time, and among the papers found after her death was one endorsed. Plan of a novel, according to hints from various quarters. The names of some of these human quarters being given in the margin. There were to be a faultless heroine and her faultless father, driven from place to place over Europe by the vile arts of a totally unprincipled and heartless young man desperately in love with the heroine and pursuing her with unrelenting passion. Wherever she went, somebody fell in love with her, and she received frequent offers of marriage which she referred to her father, who was exceedingly angry that he should not be the first applied to. The anti-hero again and again carried her off, and she was now and then starved to death, but was always rescued either by her father or the hero. For even the mildest varieties of the plots thus burlesqued, Jane had no use unless to laugh at them. End of chapter 2